Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How is everyone today? I hope you're doing good. I am, too. Nice and cool weather. Like it. If it stays like this, going into like 70s, I'm good. Anything colder? Bleh. Anything hotter? Bleh. You know, I just like it. Just like it is. Anyway, welcome. Hopefully everything's broadcasting out tonight like it's supposed to. Don't know what happened on Facebook last night. Hope it doesn't happen again. But it looks like I've got green checks all the way across the board, so we're good. Anyway, welcome. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so, and we've got a great show tonight. I was a kid growing up, loved horror movies, loved loved horror stories, read it, Dr. Allan Poe, you know, all that. But in addition to that, I must have been maybe between the ages of five and seven, and every Saturday night, I would watch Creature Features with my sister and her and my brother-in-law. We would sit there and have popcorn and stuff and watch these movies and uh, loved them, loved them, loved them. And my guest tonight has written books on these different creatures. Um, not only Sherlock Holmes, which is really cool because I read I read a lot of Sherlock Holmes when I was a teenager, but about like like our topic tonight, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, Dracula, Frankenstein, things like that. He's written books on, so it's going to be interesting to talk with him about that. In fact, when I was in college, and I was going to go into special effects for film here in Sacramento, I actually wanted to make sure um, that I took related stuff, right? I took stagecraft, all the usual, but I also took the history of the horror film. So I learned all about those things. All right, Nosferatu, all those people. So I'm, I'm really excited to have him on. Leslie Klinger is with us tonight. All right. And again, I am also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. We're 45 strong up and down the state. Um, that What that means is that if you have a paranormal issue somewhere within the state, we can help you. And it might take us a couple hours to get to you, but we will get to you and find a way to get to you. We also have affiliates in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii that can help you out, okay? Um, if you're watching from Facebook tonight and you like what you see, please hit that like button and please, um, excuse me, I'm doing a lot of ums tonight, I'm sorry. Please hit that like button and please follow. I, I need, you know, we're looking for followers. The more followers, the merrier. That's how we are. Just like YouTube, if you're watching from YouTube tonight, there's a little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen, and you can click on that ghost. That'll subscribe you to our videos. We have more than 450 videos sitting over there at varying topics. I think you'll find something that you'll like, all right? And if you are watching and you like what you you like what you hear tonight, please be sure to share it with somebody, you know, just share, 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 get the word out about the show, because the only way this show is going to take off, which it has, it has, it has more, like, like yesterday when I announced... Um, we more than doubled our uh, downloads this in one year. So it's, I mean, it's, it's we're, we're launching now. We're just starting to take off. But the only way to do that is, for, if, is with your help, with your help to share the show. So if you like the show, be sure to share it out to your friends and stuff and say, hey, there's this, there's this little show that comes on and YouTube shows them no love. So we're trying to get the word out about it. And that's, that's what we're doing. That's what it's all about. It's all about you guys sharing this. That's how we got this far. Okay, so I'm really excited. You can also find me on 
Instagram, and I'm Ghosty Gal, all lowercase, looking for followers over there. And we're over. We are also on Twitter under Cal Haunts and TikTok. And that's California Haunts, all lowercase. You can check us out on TikTok. Okay? Follow us on TikTok. Okay. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to bring my guest in. He can tell you about himself. And we'll get this show on the road. And we're going to be talking about primarily Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but also some of the other stuff that he has researched. All right? So here we go. Hello, sir. Good evening. How are you? Good. Fine. <laughs> After falling off the screen, I feel great. Yeah. <laughs> so glad tell me. Yes, sir. I was just going to say, glad to be with you. So. Yeah. Well, at least you were there. <laughs> you know. Um, tell me about you, sir. Well, let's see. Uh, a lawyer by day. That's pretty scary. But uh, by night, I'm uh, I'm a writer. So, yes, I have written... Uh, I, I, I'm not a writer of fiction. Uh, I am a writer of uh, critical biographical kind of materials. So awesome. I've written uh, the annotated uh, Dracula, the new annotated Frankenstein, the new annotated H.P. Lovecraft, and most recently the new annotated Jekyll and Hyde. Um, I've also edited, uh, co-edited with my friend Eric Guignard, the haunted library of horror classics uh, for the Horror Writers Association which is a, a series of what it sounds like classic horror. And I've edited a bunch of anthologies about ghost stories and supernatural fiction. Absolutely incredible. As a writer, I admire you because that takes a lot of research. Well, the research is the fun part. Um, the, the, uh, if you talk to any writer, they will tell you that the research is the best part of what they get to do. The, the sad part for most writers is that they have to throw away 80, 90% of the research because all writers of fiction know <clears throat> that you can't just dump the research into the text. Mm -hmm. I throw away nothing. I put it all into footnotes. That's awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So how do you choose the topics that you do? Well, I think the answer is that I've chosen, first of all, there are books that I love. Uh, they're, they're books that I'm myself passionate about, but I'm also fascinated that they are books that have gotten um, wide public appeal. These are books that have lasted for, uh, in the case of Frankenstein, more than 200 years um, and are as popular today as they ever were. They've been adapted on stage, screen, radio, uh dozens, hundreds, literally hundreds of times. And that aspect of them interests me. Why are these books so popular? What is it about them that makes them um, the focus of sort of popular culture interest? Um, question I have is, 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 is when you go through and, and, and adapt these books you know, to, to the way you're writing, do you fall back on the information in the books? And how, how do you do that research? Well, so it's a combination of things. It's a it's a process. I mean, the first thing I do is look and see who else has done this kind of work. Mm -hmm. uh, and <clears throat> there's a reason why uh, most of my books, not all, but most of my books are called the new annotated. That's because there's an old annotated that somebody else wrote uh, at some point in time. Uh, so, for example, I started all this with Sherlock Holmes. I started... Uh, 
when I was uh, in law school many, 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 many years ago, uh, a book came out called The Annotated Sherlock Holmes by William Beringold. I love that book. Um, I was fascinated by it. Uh, and when I wrote my own, I stood on the shoulders of that author. And I've stood on the shoulders of others who have edited these texts before. Leonard Wolf, for example, put out uh, an, an annotated Dracula. He put out an annotated Frankenstein. Um, he also did an annotated Jekyll and Hyde. Um, S.T. Joshi, my friend, did an annotated uh, set of H.P. Lovecraft books. Um, so I start with that, obviously. Um, but I also have, as you can see, a vast library. I have a, a library filled with Victorian reference material, uh, uh, vampire material, horror material, mystery material of, of all sorts. Uh, I have an 1888 Britannica, I have a 1910 Britannica, I have travel guides and almanacs and all those kinds of things. And I love using those. And then there's the internet, of course. The internet is a vast pool of Victorian material. Um, so the process basically requires reading the text very slowly. Um, you go through one of these books and my process is typically that I will ask myself lots of questions and drop in what I call dummy footnotes um, in the sense of, gee, I need to come back to this. I don't understand this word. I don't understand what this means. I don't know what the historical context is here or the social or cultural context. Um, and I'm going to go back and explain those things to readers. Uh, certainly, when there's somebody else that's annotated, I look at their footnotes and I say, well, if they wrote a footnote about something, probably I should too. Um, but not necessarily. I try and use my judgment about those things. But you spend a lot of time with the text, reading it really slowly, thinking about what the contemporary reader doesn't know that's there in the text. What does the word mean? What does it mean that somebody did something that was a social custom 150 years ago, but isn't anymore, and so on? Very interesting. And what do you think is people's fascination with this stuff? You know, because, I mean, it goes back, like you say, the Victorian era, but then there's there's also stories of, of vampires during the cowboy days here. Absolutely. You know, it, 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 it crosses all these borders. So what's the fascination with this? Well, e each of these topics is it's got its own fascination. I mean, vampirism um, is very much about death, to, to put it bluntly. And um, of course, we're fascinated by blood. What is mm -hmm. blood? You know, the I mean, humans have been struggling to understand what blood is because without it, we die. With it, we live. Um, is it the stuff of life? Um, what is the line between life and death? Uh, and, of course, we're also fascinated by the idea of immortality because we're all, I won't say afraid, but we're all um, concerned about death. It's going to be a big change. And uh, so it would be, it'd be nice if we knew more about it. So all of that has led to fascination with the idea of the undead, people who are 
dead but not really dead. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, Frankenstein is very much a, a, a book about life and what is life and what makes life and what's mm -hmm. the difference between being alive and being dead. Um, so these are fundamental questions for every human being. And these books explore many of those questions and think about different ideas, different answers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can understand that. Yeah, because there's always been, I mean, even like you, like, like, like you focus on Victorian. I mean, like, like I said, I mean, there's, there's, there's more recent accounts of possible vampires, you know, still, still out there where there's still people that believe in this stuff. So it's interesting oh, to see how it's carried over the centuries. And I, I understand that you do a lot of work with um, super, let's call it ghosts. And yeah, just, just, right. so that, that's not a right. fair right. description, but it's sort of right. a nice, neat right. little label. And and that too. I mean, I've, I've edited uh, two collections of ghost stories. The first one's called Ghost Stories, and the second one is called Haunted Tales. And again, it's about the fascination with death. Is there an afterlife? What happens to us when we die? Uh, so it's all about that fundamental question of death, life and death. And so, of course, these subjects continue on. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the interesting phenomena to me is that when you look at the books, when you look at Frankenstein or Dracula uh, or Lovecraft's work and so on, mm -hmm. they're superficially, if you will, about these topics. But they're also they're about other things as well. I mean, Frankenstein is very much about parenting, mm -hmm. and the and being a person who is responsible for one's creations. Uh, Dracula is very much about um, invasion, the foreigners coming into our country and taking our women, and you know, and uh, and and doing bad things. Uh, and uh, Lovecraft is very much about grappling with the shocking information of science of the day. Uh, so yes, they're scary subjects, but they're scary subjects that have been translated into broader issues. Absolutely. And what about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? What was your fascination with, with going through that? Well, again, uh, here's a book that um, it was published in 1886. And here we are 140, almost 135, 140 years later, still talking about it and recognized readily by your listeners. Everybody thinks they know Jekyll and Hyde. They've, they've seen the movie. They've listened to the radio play. They've read the comic book, whatever. Uh, and so that interested me. Why has this book persisted? Why has it be, been adapted so many times? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I came to some answers for myself. I'm not sure the, the correct answers, but I came to some answers. Once again, this is about fundamental human issues. It's not really a story about science gone mad. Mm -hmm. And many people think that Frankenstein is about poor Dr. Frankenstein who goes down a scientific road that he shouldn't have and uh, lets loose a monster. And similarly, Jekyll and Hyde. People remember the movies and they think of Dr. Jekyll as this poor guy who uh, inadvertently lets loose a monster. Well, that's not really what the books are about at all. 
Jekyll and Hyde is about what Stevenson himself, Robert Louis Stevenson, the author, called that old war of the members. Uh, and what he meant was the struggle that everyone, everyone goes through of reconciling different dualistic, if you will, elements in our personalities. The parts of us that want to do good things, virtuous things, the parts of us that want to enjoy ourselves and survive and get ahead. And reconciling those is that old war of the members. It's it's trying to wrestle with those issues and, and integrate our approach to those. The truth is that what the book is really about is a man who tries to take the easy way out. He thinks that he will be able to be a better person if he can isolate the bad parts of himself. Uh, and so he develops this drug that will do that. And in fact, it leads to disaster. Uh, instead of being um, a good person who succeeds, he's a mess because he's got He's, he's strengthened the evil parts of his own personality and weakened the good parts of his own personality. Um, and so it's a universal theme. I mean, we are all struggling with the issues that Jekyll did. We don't know what Dr. Jekyll's sins were. The book is ambiguous about what it is that uh, he is concerned about. Was he engaging in homosexual activities at a time when those were very repressed? Um, did he have dalliances with prostitutes? We did he, you know, did he beat his wife? Did he uh, uh, use child? Pro we don't know, right? Uh, and it's it's ambiguous and uh, deliberately so, I think. But we know that he recognizes that he had sinned he had, he had done wrong things bad things in his life mm -hmm. and he conceives this way out and interestingly the films uh and the stage plays have greatly simplified the story they have made it much more black and white uh jekyll is a really good person uh he's the victim of hyde etc and oh. that's not the original story and for those who have only seen the films i mean what can i say i highly recommend reading the book because it's a much more nuanced and universal uh, theme than just, oh, poor Dr. Jekyll, he uh, let loose a monster. And there's even variations on the movies. I mean, you've got Disney's Nutty Professor. And you have Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Or, right. uh, or uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, uh, together again. And, you know, it's sort of comedy element, uh, Tom yeah. and Jerry uh daffy duck you have comic takes on this you have but everybody knows what you mean when you say oh he's a, a jekyll and hyde mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, uh but they don't mean really what the book is about but they mean what the popular image has become right 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 now when you go back through to do your research and you're looking at different versions of the story do you find out things that you didn't know oh absolutely um uh, for one thing, I was astonished by how many films there were. Uh, and I, I included in the book a detailed uh, uh, filmography of, of the book. Uh, this goes back to the silent era. There are a number of silent films. And uh, wonderfully, many of them are available on YouTube. Uh, but uh, 
it's fascinating to see these, including an early Stan Laurel uh, film, Dr. Pickle and Mr. Hyde or something like that. Uh, and um, so that was a surprise. But the big surprise really was what a beautiful book it is. Uh, this is, I mean, this is a mystery. It's a mystery um, of, it's a murder mystery. I mean, we, we have a, a, a crime committed early in the book, uh, the murder of a man named Sir Danvers Carew. And we know that it was committed, or we think it was probably committed by Mr. Hyde. But who is Hyde? He keeps disappearing. Uh, and what is up with Jekyll? Why is it that he has a will that says, if I disappear, give everything to Mr. Hyde? Um, and so the detective, whose name is Gabriel Utterson, he's a, he's a lawyer. He's Dr. Jekyll's longtime friend and lawyer, uh, sets out to solve this mystery. Uh, and in the end, he does. He does because his friend, Dr. Lanyon, who is also a friend of Jekyll, um, has a direct experience with Hyde and, and Jekyll. Uh, and Jekyll himself confesses at the end. But it's a murder mystery that slowly builds to a big reveal at the end. And the surprise to me was how brilliantly constructed this is. When you go back and you read the book, you'll see how all the clues are there. Stevenson did a very careful job of sort of building up the clues about Jekyll and Hyde being one person, which is the big reveal. Mm -hmm. um, and when you know the secret and you go back and read the book a second time, you say, oh, of course, this explains this. And it's, that's, what, oh, yeah, that's what, oh, yeah. So it's really a very carefully constructed mystery. And I, I didn't give it credit for that when I remembered it before I went back and reread it carefully. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It sounds, I mean, I would love to do something like what you do to go. I'm a research nut. So, I mean, to go back and do all that research and look into those books must be the most fascinating thing in the world. It's great. It's great. I, I'm always finding stuff that I had no idea about, um, whether it's something strange Victorian or it's just the history of a, of a writer. And, and so, for example, with Jekyll and Hyde, um, we know that Stevenson, the manuscript was destroyed. I'm going to say it in that sort of neutral way because there's really not clear evidence about who destroyed it. Was it Stevenson himself who destroyed it? Was it his wife Florence who burnt the manuscript? We do know that his first draft was burned. Uh, probably, probably. There are some, there's enough witnesses that suggest that that's true. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that Florence, his wife, actually burned the manuscript because she found it to be too overtly sexual. Um, and she wanted it to be more allegorical and ambiguous about what Jekyll's crimes were and all that. And by the way, I mean, it's sort of the sex in the book is all um, ambiguous. There's, there's one woman character in the entire book. She's a maid who testifies about something. Um, so this is a bunch of guys talking about things that have happened to them. Uh, there's there's certainly an atmosphere of homosexuality sort of overlying this. Again, 
remember this is a time when homosexuality is a big issue in Victorian England. Uh, this is a few years before, this is 10 years before the Oscar Wilde trial and all that. So um, it was a time when homosexuality was very much uh, suppressed um, in England. So um, the, the, the book itself is a revelation in those regards. So, so there's that history that the manuscript was destroyed. There's the idea that this was drug-induced somehow. There's a little grain of truth in that. Uh, Stevenson was a, uh, had severe respiratory issues, and so like most Victorians, he took drugs that were heavily based on cocaine, opium, Etc. Because that was, you know, that was just right. part of the part of the pharmacy at the time. You could get you could get opium at your local uh, pharmacy, uh, and cocaine. You go down to the drugstore and get some cocaine. And of course, kid, mothers were being urged to give their children laudanum, which is diluted opium. You know, right. hey, your kid, your kid's teething, give him some opium. Great. So Stevenson was taking those kinds of drugs. Um, he had a dream. It was a very vivid dream that he turned into one of the scenes in the book. Um, and he wrote this book very fast. Uh, it was basically, you know, six to eight weeks between sort of conception and ready for the publishers. So it's it's hard to imagine that he wrote it that quickly. So I find it, you know, with me, with, with, with the book itself, coming from the man that wrote um, Trevor, Treasure Island, that is such a departure from the stuff he wrote before. Well, it's a departure from the things that he was well known for. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't really a departure. Because remember, this is, I mean, again, Stevenson has gone through um, periods of sort of, oh, yes, he's a children's author, to being regarded as a much more um, creative and, and important writer than that. Mm -hmm. uh, so in addition to Treasure Island and Kidnapped and A Child's Garden of Verses, which is clearly children's literature, he also had written The Master of Ballantrae, The, the Black Arrow, uh, uh, and many, many short stories. Uh, mm -hmm. He wrote a collection called The New Arabian Nights. He wrote a second collection called More New Arabian Nights. Mostly those are detective stories about a Prince Zaleski. No, not Prince, I'm sorry. Uh, a, a detective of whose name is escaped me at the moment. Um, he also had written uh, the, a short story called The Body Snatchers. He had written a short story called Markheim, many of which explored these kinds of themes. So one of the things I think that we um, misunderstand about Victorian writers, um, and this is this is a result of our own modern day prejudices, okay. is that writers in that era did not think of themselves as genre writers. Uh, I've put together a number now of mystery and horror anthologies and, and ghost story anthologies and so on. And the same writers appear in many of those anthologies because they didn't say to the world or to themselves, I write ghost stories. I write supernatural fiction. I write mystery fiction. They said to themselves and to their publishers, I write fiction. Mm -hmm. And they wrote stories that interested them. And so they kind of, we would say they bounced around. They weren't pigeonholed 
as, oh, you, Stevenson, you can't write this book because you're a children's author. You know, he was a writer, and so he wrote what he wanted. Absolutely, absolutely. So what did you find, you know, in, in, in looking at the different versions now, you know, of this book, uh, of the Jekyll and Hyde books, what did you find that that was a common theme, or, or, or was there a common thing going on through them? Because I know writers will look at other writers and say, okay, I kind of like this idea. Let's kind of add this into what I'm doing. Sure. Well, you're talking about the adaptations? The, the yes, the adaptations. adaptations. Yes, yes, sir. Well, I think that they're all fascinated by this idea that one person could be two separate people. But mm -hmm. they get it, as I said, the, most of the adaptations get it wrong. They make Jekyll a heroic figure. Uh, they make him a sort of unadulterated good person, uh, you know, almost saint-like, you know, poor, poor Spencer Tracy, who plays uh, Jekyll in one of the great films, uh, you know, he's such a good person and he just gets, he gets turned into this creature. Well, that's not the original story. Uh, and so I, I find some of those adaptations to be wrongheaded. Um, uh, but, but I understand it. Look, this has been going on for a long time. I mean, Mary, Mary Shelley, after writing Frankenstein, mm -hmm. um, she she was living in Italy at the time. She came back to England only to find a stage play. Somebody had put her book on the stage. Um, and by the way, that was very common in Victorian England because the copyright of a book didn't protect you from somebody doing a play of your book. Um, which is why Stoker, by the way, immediately put on a stage play of Dracula. It was terrible, but he put one on to protect the copyright. But in any event, the point I was going to make is Mary Shelley came back to find that a play called Presumption was very successful in London at the time. It was a play based on Frankenstein. But the title says it all. Presumption was about... Um, don't go down that road. Don't presume to act like God and try and create a living being. That's not what Mary Shelley was trying to get across in Frankenstein, it seems to me. Uh, but early on, the adapters simplified, narrowed down the focus of the story, and made it more popular. So in every single Frank adaptation, for example, of Jekyll and Hyde, you're going to find a love interest. There's some woman who is Dr. Jekyll's uh, partner, fiance, etc., who is uh, trying to save him and, and who he's wronging by doing these things. It's not in the original story, but it, it works a little better for a film or a stage play because who wants to see a version that doesn't have romance? Right, 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 right. Makes this is, of course, Lovecraft's problem, too. Right. It makes a lot of sense, though, because it makes it more interesting, you know? Well, it makes it more saleable. When you look at something like Dracula, you know, the different versions of, of Dracula that have been out there. I, I, I've read Bram Stoker's Dracula. I've read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And when you look at the different adaptations of it, they're just so different. I mean, look at Twilight. I mean, you know. Of course. Of course. Like, they're different. And, you know, that doesn't mean they're wrong. And they're just different. Uh, I, I always think of my friend Michael Connolly, who was asked about uh, the first film made from any of his books. And somebody said to him, what do you think of what they did to your book? 
And he said, they didn't do anything to my book. My book's right over there. <laughs> because I remember seeing Nosferatu. And then, 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 then you start watching the Dracula movies after that, and you and you see the differences. You know, where Nosferatu, well, it was sure. a silent movie. You know, you ever get credit to be a silent movie, but still. Sure. Well, that's a, that's a whole deep subject. I'm I'm doing a talk for the Children of the Night International Congress in uh -huh. a few weeks uh, about the changing image of the vampire and how the vampire started out even before Nosferatu. As this basically walking corpse, sort of this, you know, revenant, that is to say, undead, you know, a corpse that got up out of the grave and went around and bothered people. Uh, and how that changed over time. I mean, the big change was uh, the stage play of Dracula. That's really sort of the, the watershed right there, where mm -hmm. in the stage play, we have Dracula presented as this suave sort of lounge lizard, you know, slick back hair and all that. By the way, Lugosi was in the stage play, one of the productions of the stage plays, uh, but there were earlier actors in that version as well. And that sort of changed everything. I mean, we sort of have now this Dracula as this suave and sophisticated guy uh, on up to even more radical changes led by Anne Rice and the vampire Lestat, uh, mm -hmm. the Count St. Germain by my friend Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, uh, you know, Angel from Buffy uh, and so on. And so we, we've shifted all the way to these sort of romantic vampires. Uh, fortunately, there's still some bad ones. There's occasionally some really rotten ones, um, but uh, that, that much more interesting as uh attractive human looking creatures mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i remember how different it was the way lugosi played him and christopher lee played him yes yes well lugosi you know again you know he didn't have a lot of creative control over those films but the filmmakers wanted to present uh dracula as this seductive figure uh and, uh, you know, the audiences went wild for this. I mean, they would come and bring uh, huge bouquets of flowers, et cetera, for Lugosi. He was a, he was a true matinee idol uh, when the, during the stage play run and when the film came out. Um, and uh, it, it really changed everything in the vampire genre to where it was like, oh, well, maybe these vampires should look like humans and shouldn't uh, be smelling of the grave and have as we as we know dracula has described you know hair growing out of his palms long fingernails eyebrows that meet in the middle you know uh this is not a very attractive guy in the book if you look at the version in the book uh, and and nosferatu absolutely captures that right right next shrek is just brilliant as this kind of rat-like creature oh yeah those for russia was creepy absolutely creepy and then the casting for um lugosi too because he because he was hungarian i mean you got perfect casting there too because that's the right area and everything yes you know, where dracula was supposed to be so so that that was brilliant casting it's just interesting to see like like you say over the years how that has 
changed, you know, because now you've got these vampires that look like movie stars, you know, like, like with the Twilight vampires. And and I, I, I frankly, I enjoy going way back. I, I like the Nosferatu's. I like the Villa Lugosi's. I like all that. Well, and, I thought they were going to come back. I thought that uh, I, I, I love Steve Niles' uh, 30 Days of Night. Mm-hmm. Uh, in which uh, vampirism, and, and and also by the way, the the uh, uh, Richard Matheson uh, novel uh, uh, that has been made into movies so many times. Uh, I, what's it called? I, I'm trying to think of the name of it now. Oh my goodness, it's gone right out of my head. Uh, it's been made into movies three times: The Omega Man, and then two versions with one with Will Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, one with uh, in the in the fifties, uh, and these are versions presenting vampirism as a disease, mm-hmm. uh, as as something that the population. I mean, it's like you know, hey, the pandemic. It's a it's a pandemic that sweeps the population, and so we have uh, everybody turning into a vampire, um, except for a few holdouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what's that? What is the name of that? Gee, I'm, I feel terrible. I can't think of the name of it. It's as I said, the the. Uh, I am legend, isn't it? I am legend, of course, of course. Uh, thank you. So, uh, yeah, and 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 that really changed. That that was a very influential book in the vampire genre. I, I chaired a, a jury uh, a few years ago for the Horror Writers Association in which we gave out an award to the vampire novel post-Dracula that was uh-huh. sort of most influential um, in the world of vampire fiction. And and there were several candidates, uh, the strong candidates. Uh, the uh, the uh, Anne Rice series, of course, is very important um, in doing that. Uh, I Am Legend... Um, there's also the Kim Newman books, the whole Anno Dracula series, which imagines a world in which Dracula is not killed by the uh, the hunters and becomes the consort of Victoria. He becomes the, the, the prince consort of England and vampirism is suddenly the social thing to be. You know, the court is dominated by vampires um, and... Uh, and it's a fascinating. There's five or six books in the series. It goes. It's it's quite good. Uh, but the award we gave to Richard Matheson for I Am Legend as sort of the biggest, the most important, the game changer in terms of sort of where vampire fiction was going, uh, because it it introduced this idea that maybe it was a disease and maybe it was something that was just unavoidable and by the way that maybe vampires weren't evil they were just a different species mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now when you think about everybody that's these guys that you know including yourself that write these adaptations could the influence for some of their stories be what's going on around now you know like, like, like their particular time oh of course of course nina auerbach wrote a brilliant book many years ago called uh, our vampires ourselves um, in which she looked at how vampires very much um, are plastic creatures of legend that let us examine our own social ills. 
I'm a huge fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I love the series. I've seen it, uh, I'm sorry to admit it, eight times, uh, every single episode. And I just said to my wife the other day, I guess it's probably time for us to watch it again. Uh, and uh, my favorite episode of all of them is one in which a sad group of teenagers has formed a little club uh, to try and live the vampire lifestyle. They, they talk about vampires as the lonely ones, uh, and they see themselves as living this glam glamorous sort of Lestat-like life. And, of course, in the show, what happens is, spoiler alert here, uh, the vampires come in and kill them all because the vampires in the Buffy universe are soulless demons who aren't lovely, wonderful people, just lonely, sad, you know, romantic figures. Mm -hmm. uh, they're evil. They're, they're demons. Um, but I love the idea that, that this crowd of teenagers found vampirism um attractive because they're all loners mm -hmm. um some of them i mean we, we might call them losers but i mean they're loners they're they're people who are looking for a connection they're looking for some sort of ethic some sort of structure in their lives and they think that being vampires will give them that fascinating so when you yeah you know, so so when you go back and you look through all this information, how are you able to put it into into a book form? I mean, there's got to be so much that you're taking in. You know, there's just well, so yes, you do have to you do have to cut. Uh, it's uh, I, I I have told the story before about when I first did the annotated Sherlock Holmes. Um, I uh, got a call from the senior editor at Norton who said, "Les, you know, we have a little problem." Um, we had budgeted your first two volumes for 1,200 pages. You're at 1,900 pages. Huh. And I said, oh, my God, you know, you're not going to make me cut footnotes. And they said, no, no, we just want to cut the color pictures out. <laughs> it was like, okay, thank you. So I, of course, tend to be inclusive. Um, I have frankly been lucky and never had an editor who has said, you have too many footnotes. Um, but I do try to uh, exercise some discretion about them. I mean, there, are, there is an annotated edition of Dracula uh, by a, a, a writer named Clive Leatherdale, wonderful name, uh, that has a lot more footnotes than I do. Um, but um, I like to think that I've footnoted everything that is important or material or significant. But there is discretion about sort of what to what to put in and what to cut out. When I did Sherlock Holmes, for example, I mean, William Berengould was fascinated by the subject of what Sherlockians call chronology. That is assigning dates to the stories to determine, to, to fix when did the events in the stories take place. Not when were they written, but if we're going to play the game, that these are historical accounts. When did they take place? Where did they take place? And he devoted tons of footnotes to the chronology data, um, including the weather in the stories and all that. I cut those out. 
I, I just found that less interesting and I cut it out and sort of relegated it to an appendix at the end of the book. So there's always some discretion about what uh, I need to be excited about a footnote. It's like, that's really interesting. That's really cool. Um, before I sort of stick it in the book. Now, it's not all that. I mean, what I find interesting isn't going to appeal to everybody. For example, right. in Jekyll and Hyde, um, many of the footnotes are about textual variations. One of the fascinating opportunities with Jekyll and Hyde is that we have um, a big chunk of the manuscript. Um, we have what's called the printer's copy, which is um, what the was turned in to the printer and what was going on there. And we have Stevenson's edits to that, turning it into the published version. So we have three different versions of the text. And so in my notes, I spent a good deal of time looking at the differences between those texts, because I think that, first of all, many readers are interested in the craft of writing. Mm -hmm. How does this happen that a masterpiece comes out? Does it come out perfect, you know, just sort of straight out of the brain? Not generally the case. They go through revisions and all that. So, and what choices did he make? And are there interesting things in those choices? Characters that were cut out, scenes that were cut out, and so on. So I hope that the readers find that interesting, but I included a number of footnotes that were relating to textual variations. But I also included footnotes about it, you know, this is very different from the movies. This is different from the comics. Uh, here's what this means in a cultural context. Uh, here's what this word means, and so on. They can't all be cool, but I hope they're all interesting. Mm -hmm. So as you were writing um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and you, like I said, you were going through all this information, were you able to sort, well, obviously you were able to, like, like we just talked about, able to sort through the stuff that, that they had pulled from, you know, from the, their own society that they were living in to, to make it into a viable book. Sure. Sure. And you know, this is um, like, like all of these books. I mean, my, my thesis is that any great book is a mirror of its time. Mm -hmm. um, if, if the writer is a good writer, um, you get a really good reflection of the time period. Um, this is why I imagine someday doing an annotated version of Jacqueline Suzanne's Valley of the Dolls. Oh, you know, yeah. I'm going to be writing footnotes explaining what does it mean that the character looked at his watch? You know, what's a watch? Mom, we don't have watches anymore, you know, uh, and so on. So, uh, I mean, of course, you know, you're always answering, uh, why didn't they call somebody on their cell phone? Well, they didn't have cell phones then. So, you know, you end up explaining some of those things. It's funny. One of the books that I did um, was The Watchmen, uh, the great graphic novel by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. And it's set in the in the Vietnam War period, um, largely. And I realized that I had to write footnotes explaining what was the Vietnam War? Who was Richard Nixon? Who was Henry Kissinger? You know, why is it funny that Gerald Ford stumbles uh, while he's climbing the steps to an airplane or something? You know, because there was a joke about Gerald Ford chewing gum at the same time as he was walking, talking, yeah. walking, you know. So uh, these are things that us older folks remember and they're the cultural context. 
but they need explaining. And clearly the same is true for the Victorian era. So, mm -hmm. I mean, none, none of us alive remember the Victorian era. Mm -hmm. So it takes a lot of that explaining. It's a lot of fun to do that. Um, and I hope the readers think it's cool. I, I always say, look, these are great books. They don't need Les Klinger to be better. Mm -hmm. uh, if I can enhance the reader's experience, um, kind of like the director's track on a DVD, that's what I'm aiming for. Absolutely. I was just thinking as you were saying that, um, these videos that pop up on Facebook every once in a while of the kids that uh, they, they lock them in a room with a dial-up telephone. And they don't know how to use it. They don't know how to use it, yeah. What do you do here? This thing holes in it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Very I mean, weird. Tape player or something, you know. And that's true. I, I agree with you in that. In fact, even with ghost hunting, I mean, we go out to ghost hunt. If we're talking to a woman from Victorian times, we're sure as heck not going to plop a cell phone down and go, well, this is a cell phone, you know, it takes photos. She's not going to know what the hell we're talking about. You well, know, we it's hard. You know, we, I mean, one of the things that's happening is, of course, I mean, my generation is living longer. So, um, so uh, I mean, I, my wife and I use the expression, you know, you sound like a broken record. Mm -hmm. What's a record, you know? Uh, <laughs> and uh, why would it break? Uh, so these are things that, that are sort of built into us that we forget that things have changed and, and right. times are different. This is a great plague, as I said, for mystery writers now. It's like, Oh my God! How am I going to explain how this uh, final woman is trapped? Why doesn't she just call somebody on her cell phone? Okay, mm -hmm. well maybe the battery died. You know, okay, but technology changes and social custom changes um, mm -hmm. affect the stories we tell. Do you think, um, just uh, just off the top of your head, that maybe the schools need to te teach more history to these kids? I mean, so so they know this stuff. Well. I mean, I think that what needs to happen is that the, the schools need to encourage them to read, quote, old books. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I read Dracula in college and I read it um, thinking that I just wanted to get it out of the way because, you yeah. know, it was like, oh, it's an old book. I, you know, and to my shock, uh, I loved it. And it was just it's was very scary uh, and all that. And I think that I mean, one of the reasons that we did the Haunted Library series for the Horror Writers Association was with the hope that these books will end up in the educational market, that teachers will use them to teach classes um, about writing from the 19th century and early 20th century, um, which is not disposable. I mean, those they're old. Yes, they're old, but they're highly relevant. Um, my partner, Lisa Morton, who I have been doing, uh, we've done four books together, four, five, something like that. Um, we've been pitching uh, the idea of a television series based on these stories written in the Victorian period. And one of the things that we discovered and I'm trying to say to producers are, you can take these stories, you don't have to do them in the Victorian period. You can make them absolutely contemporary and they're just as relevant because mm -hmm. all of the issues about mortality and the supernatural and human relationships, mm -hmm. nothing's changed. 
So there's a lot of literature out there that is unfortunately being overlooked by readers that they need to pay attention to. Yes, thank you for saying that. <laughs> well, I remember reading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in college, and I remember looking at that book. It's so thick. And I thought, oh, God, here we go. Whenever I was rolling my eyes. But, man, that's right. a good piece of literature, boy. That's a good book. Well, that's always the surprise. I remember reading Moby Dick and, and finding this book to be really a good book. It was like, wait a minute. I've been dreading this for years. And... Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you say to people that, 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 that want to do what you do? Well, I guess the advice I would give to writers who want to write nonfiction is um, make sure that you pick a subject that you're passionate about. Don't don't think about the market. Don't think. I mean, nonfiction writers, um, the process is different from fiction writers in that we typically find a subject, pitch it to a publisher, and the publisher says, that sounds great here's some money, go ahead and write your book Mm -hmm. after they're convinced that you're the right person to write the book. That's very different from fiction writing where you write the book and then you try and sell it to somebody. Uh, But in either case, you're going to spend a lot of time on whatever the subject is. Uh, If you're writing nonfiction, you know, my big books, they're two years, year and a half to two years of a very deep dive into this subject. So my advice is be sure you're passionate about it. Um, You're going to spend a lot of time on this and it needs to be something you love and you love thinking about and writing about, or else you're just going to do a crappy job. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you can't do this artificially. Um, You need to be passionate. Well, that comes into my next question then. Like you say, it's two years for you to write a book. How much of that is research for you? Um, a lot. Uh, but I tend to research sort of on the fly. I don't do a year of research and then sit down and write the book. I will spend, um, a good deal of time at the beginning amassing my resources. That is to say, for example, Jekyll and Hyde, you know, buying copies of every single book where somebody has written about Jekyll and Hyde as well as multiple editions of the book because I wanted to reproduce the images. And by the way, I should point that out about this edition. We have 150 illustrations in the book. Many of them are illustrations from older texts of the story. Many of them are film posters, lobby posters, stills, uh, comic book covers, etc. So... At the beginning, I will gather those resources, and that may take a month or two to sort of pull that stuff together. But then I sort of do the research on the fly. As I'm going through, I'll say, oh, I didn't realize you need to know something about that. Mm -hmm. And so I will then uh, dive into that narrow subject and do research in the resources I have or find more resources and so on. So it's hard to pin down the amount of time for the research because it's, it's, it's a mixed bag. Well, I mean, what I'm thinking too, is there's probably times when you're writing stuff and you realize you, you, there's information there that you didn't realize you had. So now you've got to go back and do that research on it. Absolutely. I, I'm one of the great joys of using uh, Google. This isn't a commercial for Google, but one of the great joys (laughs) of using Google 
is that sometimes I'll search something and realize that when I found the material, I already have it. It's on my bookshelf. I just didn't realize that it was in that book. Uh, and so I'll, I'll turn around and use it. I've had that happen several times. It's really funny. What's been your most favorite book to write? Oh, gosh. I knew you were going to ask that. And I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day, and I said, you know, how can we choose among our children? It's, uh, it, it's, they're all, uh, they're all wonderful. They were all a treat to write. Dracula had some very special treats to it, though. I mean, the, the big thrill of Dracula was the discovery fairly early on that there was a manuscript of Dracula that, um, in the 1910s, I guess, someone discovered in a barn a typed version of Dracula that had been sent by Stoker to his friend, uh, uh, the poet Walt Whitman. And it had never gotten to Whitman. So it had ended up in this guy's barn in a trunk. And it was discovered and it was sold. And I found out that it had been an auctioned and I wrote to the auction house and asked them to put me in touch with the buyer. It turned out to be the billionaire Paul Allen. And he let me come up to Seattle and spend two solid days going through this typescript of the book, page by page. And I got to see, I mean, it's all reflected in the footnotes to my, my Dracula, but the incredible amount of changes that occurred uh, material that you would only discover by actually looking at the physical pages of the manuscript. Uh, so that was a that was a unique experience. Uh, I've looked at lots of manuscripts of lots of material, the Sherlock Holmes stories, uh, Jekyll and Hyde, Frankenstein, etc. But that one was very special because I actually got to hold the pages in my hand and uh, go through them and hold them up to the light and see material that was pasted over and all kinds of stuff. So. What an incredible experience. Last question for you. You're on the strip in Vegas. You're standing out there and there's uh, other guys that have anthologies as well. How do you draw people into reading your anthologies? Um, I guess the answer is that um, I'm, I'm hoping that the subjects will interest me. It's not less clinger. I mean, I, I mean I'm hopeful that I'm, I'm always surprised that I actually have fans. Uh, mm -hmm. That people say, oh, another Klinger book. You know, it's like, really? But um, it's the subjects. It's, uh, you know, you're going to be interested in the things I mean, because I'm a geek. So mm -hmm. I hope you're going to love the things that I love, whether it's Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics, or it's uh, his American Gods novel, or it's Watchmen, or it's Sherlock Holmes, or it's Lovecraft, or Dracula, or Jekyll and Hyde. You know, there's not very many of us focusing on those those specific kinds of books. So you have to read mine because there isn't any other. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, what's next for you? Well, I continue to be uh, the series editor of the Library of Congress Crime Classics. So we're putting out a book sort of every two or three months. Um, these are what they sound like. They're American crime fiction uh, classics from the last... 120 years. Um, those are great fun. Um, I just finished working on uh, S.S. Van Dyne's The Canary Murder Case, which was 
hard. I mean, nobody remembers this book. It was probably the most popular book of its era. 1927 is when it was published. And an enormous bestseller. Nobody remembers Vance, Philo Vance or, or the writer. Uh, but so those are those are ongoing and those are great fun. Uh, I'm pitching various ideas for a big book, but we'll see. Absolutely. And how can people find you, sir? LeslieSklinger.com. Um, you can read, uh, you can see all my books there and do stop by and uh, send me a message. Sir, Mr. Klinger, thank you so much for coming on tonight. It's this been was fun. Delight. It was fun talking about this stuff. Thank Maybe you. In the future, we can get you back on too to talk more about this stuff because it was, Great. Cool. It was pretty cool. I had a good time. I hope you did too. Thanks so much. All have right. a good well, evening now. You too. You have a good evening. Sure. See ya. Okay. Okay. Well, that was an interesting talk about right writing books and Jekyll and Hyde and and and, and Dracula and Frankenstein and all that good stuff. Boy, I loved it, loved it, loved it. Tomorrow, Nancy Matz joins us again. And she's going to be talking about psychic readings. You know, sometimes when you're sitting with a psychic and you're getting a reading, sometimes the reading doesn't come through clear. You know, sometimes the information is just not there. That's what she wants to talk about a little bit and explain that, why that varies sometimes. You know, so sometimes that beacon's on, sometimes that beacon's not, not on so well. And she's going to be talking about that tomorrow. So uh, that, that'll be tomorrow's show, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Uh, usual time and uh, we'll be back obviously if you like the show share it with five people if you hated the show share it with five of your enemies we are equal opportunity here we're just trying to get the word out again if you're watching facebook from facebook and you uh, want and, and you want to follow us hit that follow button and if and, and, and if you liked it hit that like button and if you're watching from youtube same thing Hit the like button, and down in the bottom right-hand corner is the little ghost with the magnifying glass and the Sherlock Holmes hat on. And uh, click on that, and it'll subscribe you. And you, as you can see, we we don't always talk about ghosts. You know, we talk about different different topics. Uh, you know, might, might even include spousal abuse and things like that. Because I like to keep keep the news thing going. You know. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I really appreciate everybody, and uh, I will see you tomorrow at six thirty, six thirty p.m. Pacific. And I'll give you uh, Les's information and how, how you can reach him and his website and, and uh, so, uh, some of his books. So here we go. Website, Les, lesliesklinger.com. Dracula. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Frankenstein. Sure, and he has stuff on Sherlock Holmes, and he mentioned a few others. He's got a lot of books out, so if you check them out at Amazon, which is where I have these two, the books at Amazon.com, you'll see a lot of books by, by, by Les, and they're really good books. I, I, I've read a few of them. Okay, guys, I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great evening. Bye. <laughs>